0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not. On this program, Published or Not, we know it's difficult to write a story and then to get the manuscript read and accepted by a publisher. We not only have an author that has done just that, but he also has a character in his book who is striving to do it. (laughs) Welcome back, Matthew Ryan Davies. Hello, Jan. Thanks very much for having me. Hi, David. Hi. Drew, now he's the character. What is his writing dilemma?
2: Well, he's he's writing his second novel. The first one hasn't done very well. And he knows if this second one doesn't do well, it, it might be his last chance.
1: I'm going to get Matthew and I are Davis to read from his book, page 277. It's right at the end, but it's, I think, a lot of writer's dilemma.
2: Often when I'm sitting at my desk trying to write, all of a sudden I get these visitors self-doubt anxiety panic they come into my den and pull up chairs forming a circle around me and start to jabber on about how shit i am how i have no business being a writer and will never amount to anything
1: his confidence isn't really there is it no well when other writers publish drew will say oh i can't wait to read your book but he never does and then there's also professional envy that he has. Who is Drew most jealous of?
2: Well, there's one particular guy who he, um, he went to grad school with, so Drew's, a, Drew's an American. And this, this guy has done very, very well for himself, and Drew in comparison is not, so he's, um, he's very aware of their two different trajectories. So he's kind of become, he's writing nemesis, if you like, and his name's C.J. Debono.
1: Oh, CJ de Bono, yes. Authors are also aware that they have to use social media to sell their brand. But Drew has chosen not to or to actually mix with anyone in the writing community. how, how is Drew being supported?
2: His wife really I mean he does work. He works as a freelance um he works as a freelance writer, but um but mostly his wife um, supports him through his work. So he does feel this sense of wanting to contribute to, I guess, to the household and to live up to um, the promise of what he kind of told her he would be. Um, So that's kind of an extra pressure for for him.
1: Well, Claire, his wife, has a a really full life. She's got a job that she works hard at and she's got a lot of hobbies and Drew really doesn't have much except for writing.
2: Yeah, he sort of insulates himself a lot. He kind of disappears into his writing and, and, and hides himself there. Because there are things in his life that he, that he doesn't want to face or can't face. And like with CJ DeBono, he, he, he doesn't have a lot of writer friends because, although it would be lovely to think that the, the, the writing community is always, and everyone's very supportive, that, you know, there, there can be professional jealousies and hurt feelings, and sometimes that, that's, that's hard to grapple with.
1: So Claire, his wife, has really been his only true friend, someone who he has relaxed with. But both Claire and his agent, feel that he's not writing at his potential. He's not allowing his emotions. So there must be something in the past that's stopping this. And this is where the book takes a tangent. As a 12-year-old in 1992, why did Drew's American family come to Australia?
2: Well, his stepfather was in the military um, and he'd just been in the Gulf War. And they came came to Australia to the the real-life Victorian seaside town of Queenscliff um, for a military posting. So his stepfather was in the military and he was posted Queenscliff, in particular Swan Island, and that brought them over on an assignment that was supposed to be for two years, but didn't work out that way.
1: How did they, the stepfather and Drew, were they bonding?
2: No, so Drew had lost his his own father a few years before. And he, 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 well, I mean, he hadn't really had a chance to get to know Mark because Mark had been in the Gulf War and then he married his mother very quickly and they came to Australia.
1: Mark and Drew really, it's not a true father-son, commitment there no. and uh, but Mark also has his problems and this was something I didn't know about from the Gulf War.
2: Yeah so Mark had been in the Gulf War and what I learned when I was doing my research when I started thinking about the character of Mark I was thinking you know he'd have some PTSD and he you know he's he's probably been affected you know had some psychological issues that he's trying to trying to deal with um, but when I looked into it a lot more I discovered that there were a lot of other health problems that GIs had when they came back from the Gulf that were not recognised by the US government, and it was to do with the chemicals that they were exposed to in, in Iraq, and also the all the vaccines that they were given before they left. So they were pumped full of all these vaccines because they didn't know what they were going into. So the US government pumped them full of all these all these vaccines thinking they're coming up against biological warfare, and but they didn't know what, so they just gave them everything all at once. And um, it led to a lot of health problems for a lot of a lot of the GIs.
1: So not only research into that, but also research into postnatal depression. How did Drew see his mother's attitudes change?
2: Yeah. So when they came when they came to Australia, Drew's mother was pregnant, and she has the baby in the in the first couple of months that they're in Australia. Um, but she has no support, and you know back in back in Minnesota where they came from, she had her family. But in Australia, she has no friends. She knows no one. She's stuck in the house the whole time. And um, her mental health takes, takes a turn for the worst. And, and Drew can't understand what's going on to going on with his, his beautiful mother. He's, she's changing in a way that he never thought he would have to, have to experience. And, you know, for all of them, being in a new country and everything's different and, and Mark's going through his issues and Drew's mother's going through hers and it's, it's a very hard time for their family.
1: So 12-year-old Drew, first day in Queenscliff, he met another 12-year-old boy Tom, this is a quote, Tom had a year-round tan, the sun so imbued into his skin you imagined it would always be warm to touch. What was their friendship based on?
2: Well, t- Tom, Tom was was very adventurous, and he pretty much pulled Drew out of his shell. Drew Drew was a big reader, and he liked nothing more than to stay at home and and to read and to in, and escape into books and in, into other words worlds. Even as a child, he got him out of his crazy household, and he showed him the the, the sights and sounds and joys and ad- adventurous things that everything that Queens could, could offer. They went fishing together. They went on hikes. You know, they ate fish and chips. Drew had never had fish and chips. And Drew had never had a sausage roll or a vanilla mm-hmm. slice, and all these things that he discovered. Um, with Tom, and 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 Tom was just so carefree, and you know he just seemed to know everything about about marine life, and he was he was really a good friend to Drew.
1: Things I learned too: fish scales are laid down in rings like tree rings, so you can age a fish. Yeah. <laughs> and they also shared some double talk, like walkie-talkie. Yes. But I loved what they what they called pillows. Yeah. Betty Headies. Betty Headies, yeah. <laughs> and Heaty Eaties for takeaways. You know, it was yeah. really lovely. Well, as you said, the American contract was meant to be for two years, but it was six months later. Drew went back to America. We are unsure of what happened until the very end. Drew's teenage years were mixed with other reading nerds. He drank too much. Quote, drinking stopped me caring. I kept drinking because I wanted to care less. He's now 39. He's living in min- Minneapolis with Claire. It's a snowy December, and now he's in another dilemma.
2: Yeah, he gets the news that, that his mate from childhood, uh, Tom, has died, and he he doesn't know what to do with that information because he's he, he's he's lived with this experience that they that they went through for all these years, and and Tom has lived with it, and neither of them have been able to speak about it, and. Little does Drew know, I mean, his wife is a lot more emotionally intelligent than, than, than Drew is, and, and, and she suggests he goes to Australia for the funeral. And, and Drew says, you know, why, what, what what would be the point? And and, and she says, you, you need to go back there to Queenscliff, because she knows there are things he needs to deal, to deal with, and so that's what he does.
1: Grief, gloom and guilt. Yes. Mm, sum it up. We get all these hints at Tom's mother at the funeral. I never walked down your old street. I can't pass that house without thinking about what happened there. And Drew himself, another quote, why did my subconscious keep returning to my childhood when my conscious brain was doing its level best to forget it? Now, halfway through the book, and the book is called, I haven't told you that, The Broken Wave, we do learn about what happened. Do we believe it? This is all very clever plotting. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So did it take a few efforts to do it?
2: Yeah. I mean, you don't want – you want your ending to be a surprise but not – Unbelievable, you know mm-hmm. it has to be plausible, and you, so you want the you want the reader to be able to look back and say, "Oh yes, I can see those 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 hints were dropped, and now I can see this all this all comes together." Um, I did know that something terrible was going to happen with these boys, but when I first started writing, I didn't know what it was. It probably came to me about halfway through, and mm-hmm. then I sort of wrote towards that.
1: Well, Tom has left a family, wife Tia, and two children, Adam and Missy. What makes Drew really want to connect with the son, Adam?
2: When when um, when Drew comes to, to, to Queenscliff for the funeral, he meets Tom's son for the first time, and he's around the same age that that, that he himself was when he met Tom. And he reminds me so much of him, just the way he moves and he talks, and he's interested in everything. Even the way he puts on a shirt is the same way that Tom used to do it. That he's never seen anyone else do it this way, and and it brings back memories of the, of their childhood together, and and this this friendship that that he'd never managed to replace, and so there's one sort of selfish aspect of him that he wants to spend time with Adam because he wants to to relive that friendship that he had with Tom. But he's also very aware that that, that Tom has lost lost his father as Drew had lost his own father when he was a child. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's those two reasons that that draw him.
1: And then Adam, as a young grunting teenager, doesn't make it easy for this connection. But what does Adam overhear about his father's death?
2: Well, he overhears... um, from his grandfather that 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 he so so Tom had died in a boating accident and um he overhears that the accident, that it might not have been an accident that he might have orchestrated the, the whole thing and that's another reason why Drew is thinking that that, that Tom was struggling a lot more with what had happened to them as children than he'd realized
1: and talking with people this is another quote give me a few hours to come up with a dialogue in a book and i can work it out but put me on the spot and i'm useless Oh yeah. Right. So it's the character of Tom we might give the last line to, and this is another quote: "See the bay out there." This is Tom speaking as a twelve-year-old. The best bits are right in front of us. It's just that they're hidden under the broken waves, and that's where you got the title from.
2: Well, I put it. In, I put that in later. Actually, I got the title, and then I put that in. <laughs> that that line in later. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So like a moth to a wool sweater, I went to the fiction shelves to see whether my book was there. So is that is that a, something authors do do?
2: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, a strong, short boyhood friendship and catastrophe link lives and responsibilities many years later in Matthew Ryan Davies' The Broken Wave. Such a good read. Thank you.
2: Thanks very much for having me, Jan. And I'm just
0: going to check to see whether... My author's uh, microphone is working, but let's find out if that's the case. The Hall of the Stewards has fallen. Will the Dark King finally assert his authority in Dark Air, the sequel to CS Cat's Dark Rise, we delve further into a fantasy world of competing forces. So, Cat, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. And
3: you're on mic. This is. Wonderful. And I'm on <laughs> mic.
0: <laughs> now, in a line, I'm going to ask you to do the possible. Can you sum up Dark Rise, which was the first instalment, albeit but briefly, Sinclair, Stewards, Will Kempen? Give it a go.
3: Ah, it's a. Uh, it's a, on the surface, simple tale of good versus evil um, in an old-fashioned, almost old-fashioned style, but uh, nothing is as it seems.
0: Nothing is as it seems. We've had the Hall of the Stewards in the previous um, novel, and that's fallen. This leaves uh, Will Kempen still struggling to find out who he is we've got Sinclair who's a sort of evil character lurking in the background but that gets me to the prologue of dark air and this actually sets the tone it seems Visander who's a champion of the old world has been buried alive but what does he discover we've got this coming out of the grave but what's what's What does he discover?
3: Yeah, well, I should say that in this story, you know, the heroes and villains of a long-dead magical world start to be reborn into our world and play out their old feuds. So we've met characters who have been literally reborn into new bodies, but in book two we discover that there is a new way to return, which is that the sort of essence of a a champion can return into the body of someone that is alive or dead now. Um, So Visander wakes up, uh in a grave he's been buried in his and um the prologue is him digging his way to the surface uh only to find out when he breaks through the surface alive that the body that he's in is not his own
0: but this is where you do some intriguing things it's a a a regular trope you know being buried alive but you add to it an element of the macabre because he realizes his hand is not his own but how his he- hand
3: is not his own. His breasts are not his own. Oh, the well, long hair is he, not his he, own. Well, he, uh, he is in the body of a 16-year-old
0: girl. A girl. So you go from the he, he, he to Catherine. You're yes. There. And Catherine's died in the previous uh, instalment. But again, this brings up this whole notion of being reborn or transportation or possession. There's even a word scrying that mm. you use as well. And everybody seems to have a form or an ability to do this. I mean, Sinclair, who's uh, Lord Sinclair, who's one of the dark, evil people, what's he able to do in this regard?
3: Yeah, so in this book, um, uh, a classic tale of the past is that a, a dark lord in the style of a Sauron, if you will, um, very old fashioned style of dark king, uh, tried to take over the, the old world. Uh, it was defeated at great cost and the old world was destroyed. And so he has his, um, he is now reborn into our world and he's up to his usual shenanigans or is he, um, but also his descendants uh, also exist, so and they're all able to use his powers, which is a kind of um, ability to control, to step into the bodies of others, to see out of their eyes, to control them at least for a time.
0: But this means you can be in two places at once. You can be in two places at once, yes. Well, this adds a certain intrigue to the plot because, you know, as as a reader, where are we? Secondly, how do we juggle all of these different uh regions in which we live, but also Will Kempen discovers that he can actually have this ability as well so we can actually spy on other people as we go
3: yes um, this in this book will who we met as sort of a an almost hapless hero figure I feel like these heroes in these sort of English books that I grew up reading are always called will or if they're not called will they're called Harry that's why I've named him that um, he starts out as a very simple seeming everyman hero but um, but by book two we've learned a lot more about him and his true identity uh, and he starts to take take up some of his his inherited powers.
0: And so there's an S that seems to be emblazoned on people. We originally thought in the first novel that this was a sign of almost possession, that Sinclair might claim ownership because of this S, but there are... It's another thing altogether.
3: Yes. Yeah, so we learned that the Dark King branded his followers with the S, uh, which is a symbol we don't quite, we haven't yet learned the true meaning behind of it. It's So stay tuned. But um, but everyone branded with the S, um, they believe it's just a sign of, of loyalty or, or fealty to Sinclair. It's actually the Dark King's mark and it allows him to
0: inhabit your body. It's... So now let's go back to Visander, who's been in the grave, etc. because there's another question that arises, which you've already identified in many ways, is this notion of gender. Yes. Because the next thing we find when, because there are several sort of concurrent storylines, Visander has been taken out of the grave or found his way out of the grave, but he's about to get married. Yes. <laughs>
3: Um, Yes, Catherine was in the midst of a a tangle of an arranged marriage uh, right before the ending of book one. So now that she's out of the grave and back to life, it's um, straight back to the altar for her, regardless of who's inhabiting her body. But here
0: we go. (laughs) We've now got this sort of question or this ability to look at, well, look at something through somebody else's eyes, namely people that are gender diverse. I mean, the room was not his prison this flesh was, so you're actually providing, I I, I not call it a comic way, but it, it, it sort of is of looking at this whole notion of of finding your place yes. in some ways. Yes.
3: Um, well, uh, as a as a gender queer author, you know, I'm really interested in. Um in anything that challenges, um, I guess, a conventional understanding of gender. So the idea that a hero from the past might return into a modern body was very um, delicious to me, but particularly the idea that that might also subvert some gender expectations along the way. Um, How important is the body, you know? But it's also,
0: there's a comic element to it because you find, Visander finds that, no, I can't actually fight in this dress. Yes, there's
3: a definite fish out of water aspect to it as well, because um, the book's set in 1820. So there is that sort of drawing room comedy of manners aspect, because not only does he have to deal with um, a, a, a body of a different gender, which probably wouldn't bother him that much, but um, it's the feminine conventions of the 1800s that really turn out to be the real challenge. But you've also got
0: feminist (laughs) and and masculine expectations that are set today as well. But this brings to the fore questions of gender and relationships in this story. We've got some very uh, firm friendships, but the central figures, Will and James, are having to address this issue and if i may on page 410 if i can get there (laughs) in enough time um where are we Uh, like a man at the edge of a cliff yearning to throw himself over james wanted an act that was irrevocable he wanted to sever sever himself from the dark king forever and Will wanted it too, ached to step in and take what James was offering him, ached to touch where others hadn't, to bring him to true surrender, to know how it felt to give himself to another. So you're actually bringing to the fore this, uh, well, relationships, homoerotic relationships and such like?
3: Yeah, I mean, I grew up reading these sort of classic English novels. You know, I think we anyone that grew up, where it was like used to be pink on the map. I think we all grew up reading like Tolkien and Narnia and um, even the Dark is Rising series of books by Susan Cooper that my title is an allusion to. And, um, and you know, I loved those books so much and yet um, they sort of felt oppressive as well. So I simultaneously loved and chafed at them. Um, and one of the reasons that I chafed at them was, you know, the hero was always the same and it was always a, a straight, s- straight, straightforward English lad named Will or Harry, you know, striding across the, the green and pleasant lands and eating hot buttery toast and, um, and um, making you believe that English post-war food was like the most <laughs> magical and delicious food that possible. Um, and the places where I saw myself was most often in the villains, you know, um, who were strange or different or queer or, um, you know, othered. And, um, you know, I think it was when I was like about 15 that I realized like, oh, every Disney villain is kind of queer coded from Jafar to Ursula to Maleficent to, you know, Scar and so on. So, you know, I really yearned to reclaim, uh, the villain. <laughs> so this story is a rise of a villain in a certain sense and it is tangled up in um, in sort of uh, queer themes as well.
0: But let's now put these two ideas together, this notion of being reborn in somebody else's body and this notion of relationships. Because if you have um, this ability to move and reshape, what does it do to relationships? It's actually opening up this whole spectre of who we can trust, who we can rely on, who we actually are—is that your aim in the background, or am I reading too much into this? I think that's a really,
3: um, a really good reading, and I think also, you know, um, because Dark Rise does deal with characters that have lived a life uh, and then died and been reborn, so they have these past lives, they're reincarnated, um, and they're struggling to find out who who am I really. Uh, if people believe I am the person I was in my last life, can I throw off the shackles of the past? Can I, can I sort of become my own person now, or am I fated to just fall into the trap of expectations set for me by my past identity? Um, and so, you know, uh, it, I think that's one of the quintessential sort of questions of young adult novels is like, who am I? <laughs> um, and um, you know
0: what what can I become in this world? But young adults are also playing with identity yeah. or mo- role models, yes. who they want to be. We tend to impose and set, you know, this is how you're going to have to grow up sort of thing, but they've got to establish it. But they're also working out who they can trust.
3: Yes, that's right. Exactly. And not just who they can trust, but what stories they can trust. And in Dark Rides, you know, Um, the story that we're told about the past world is at first very simple. It was a battle of good and evil. It was dark versus light. Um, You choose a side um, and um, everything seems extremely straightforward. But um, the more they learn, the more they realise that these stories that they're being told aren't always trustworthy and that, you know, can we always believe what we're told about someone else?
0: And also, if people are changing their identity, can we actually – rely on our impression of who they are. But we are going to have to move on because you actually bring up another element of transportation. The hall of the stewards has fallen, but there are several gates. We can go through these to different areas. So now you've got different, the potential for different narratives occurring in different regions, uh, which complicates things further, adds a marvellous dimension. I'm just wondering how you managed to to juggle it all,
3: um, I really enjoyed building the Hall of the Stewards. So the idea is that uh, on a, on um, Abbey Marsh, just outside of London, there's a broken arch, and if you know the key, uh, it'll open an, into like a, a secret citadel that's always been there, where the stewards who are watching for the Dark King's return are sort of waiting, watching, and they're ready. Um, and in book one, you know, you really have the impression, well, this hall sits in England, you know, the gate is in, is just outside London. Um, but in book two, we realise that there's different gates that open in other places across the world. The halls are not really in England at all. It's, it's a meeting place that's sort of outside of the world. Um, and that allows my characters to travel in book two. Um, uh, we sort of, or we all head to Italy, um, to Umbria, which is actually the region that my family is from, um, but a really, really beautiful uh, region of Italy that is has
0: its own sort of dark, mysterious and mythical past. But there's also a quest that you've set up. Uh, Ettore must be found because he knows how to stop Sinclair. But that's not what it seems either.
3: No. Well, there's always a quest, isn't there? <laughs> there's got <be> to <laughs> be a quest. Um, there's got to be a quest. Um, But, yes, um, they're they're sent to find a a man in Italy um, because they they believe he holds the key to stopping Sinclair. Um, And um, there's an amazing sort of region in Umbria called the Valnerina, which means the Black Valley, uh, perfectly named for my series. (laughs) Um, And the River Nera, the Black River, kind of runs through there, um, these ancient hills where
0: uh, secrets lurk. And you've also got fantasy elements. There's the uh, Ecthalion. Ecthalion, getting my tongue around that. A sword that can kill the Dark King. You've got the Shield of Rassilon. You've got all of these characters. And the interesting thing is, Will, as you say, is is not a minor character, but the interplay means he's not as prominent. Others are equally important. Yes, and... um in a book where we don't really know
3: who to trust or who the true hero or villain of the series is, you know we've got this larger cast so that that, that question is always alive, I hope.
0: We are, in fact, going to have to uh, stop the interview there, Kat. We are running out of time. There is so much complexity in this book. <laughs> it's uh, a delight to read. It is entitled Dark Air. It's the second book. Uh, the first was Dark Rise uh, and the author C.S. Pacat, and it's an Alan and Unwin release, Jan.
1: And I spoke with Matthew Ryan Davies and his book The Broken Wave by Pan Macmillan.
0: And that takes us out for another week. So You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.
1: You've been listening to a
3: 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in
0: Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.